Greetings and salutations, Device Nation. You're home for the greatest show on earth, and we know that show is Medical Device Sales with ideas, stories, and interviews to help take you from good to great. This is Kevin Brown, your voice of CSI in times of SSI. And yes, we are going to go all CSI today and do a forensic analysis on the air, the air in the OR that many of us stand in all day, some more than others. <coughs> Spine <coughs> reps. <coughs> Spine reps truly get my respect. To be able to stand in a room for five, six hours for a case is just beyond my comprehension. I would have to have a gaming computer, a couple good magazines, uh, an ottoman, maybe a credenza, and a foley, something, just to get me through that. So... A tip of the hat in your direction, if that is your gig. Well, speaking of gig, the other night I was going to my gig and covering a trauma case late at night. And on the way there, on the highway, I was serenaded by the dulcet tones of multiple vehicles with naturally aspirated V8 engines. And it was just a wonderful sound. It didn't take me long to figure out that all of these vehicles were Ford Mustangs. And yes, it is Mustang week here in Myrtle Beach. I always love this time of year and seeing the creativity in the vehicles, and I just love that sound. I love that sound of the barely there exhaust systems and and hearing what they can coax out of those engines. Just great stuff. And you're going to love the sound of our guest today, Dr. Greg Stocks from Texas, and he's a personal hero of mine in the space of the quality of the air in the operating room and really has some awesome insights. So you're going to want to hang around for that. And as a bonus, us, uh, you're going to get to hear what he's doing in the area of looking at the angles of the femur as a determinant in whether or not a patient develops medial or lateral compartment arthritis. Really, really cool stuff. So when my kids were little, my last official act of the week on Friday afternoons was to go to the library and get a bunch of books for them. And they loved having dad read them a book for bedtime. And one series in particular that I remember was the Berenstein Bears, mom and a dad bear living in a tree with a, a son and a daughter, and the various hijinks and tomfoolery that would ensue from that. And one book in particular that stood out to me involved a soccer ball and a lamp. The lamp got broke, and then the stories that started getting spun to explain away how it got broke. By the time mom sorted out through all the obvious fabrications as to why this lamp got broken, the truth was finally revealed. Obviously, the kids did it, and they had lied about it. And I'll never forget a comment she made that trust is kind of like a lamp and that it can be broken. And when it does, it is something that is not easily put back together. So the word that we're going to spend a little time on today in our continuing series on character is Honesty. Do I even need to define it? Well, yeah, probably. Uh, Let's look at the definition of honesty. A European plant with purple or white flowers and round, flat, translucent seed pods that are used for indoor flower arrangements. Believe it or not, that is one of the definitions, but that's not the one for today. It's a facet of moral character that connotes positive and virtuous attributes such as integrity, truthfulness, straightforwardness, including straightforwardness of conduct along with the absence of lying, cheating, etc. Now, for the purposes of discussion, we're going to divide this into two sections. 
Uh, number one is just the willful lie, right? The the soccer ball knocked the lamp over, and now we're just making up crazy stories. And then we're going to talk about the blurt, which is kind of a strange word to me. I know a lot of people have problems with the word moist. And as I even look at the word blurt, it's just strange, but we have to talk about it in the context of being honest. So let's look at the willful fabrication. Many years ago, there was a rep at a particular hospital that I knew who had quite a book of business in a particular trauma item, did very, very well with it. But like a lot of independent reps, one day he woke up and because of a merger and an acquisition and on and on, he found himself without that product. So he decided to latch on to another product. However, their reprocessing guidelines were not the same, and he knew in the back of his mind that it wasn't going to fly with the hospital. So in his mind, the only way around this was to completely fabricate a letter from this new company saying that it was totally okay to reprocess these implants like the way the hospital was used to doing it. And he got nailed on it, got exposed, got fired, never saw his face at the hospital again. Total willful fabrication. One more war story for you. I was at a hospital doing a knee one morning, and there was a hip with a competitive company going on. And unfortunately, they couldn't do that hip because the instruments had never been processed. The rep called into the room. He was not there and said, uh, I tagged him last night and everything should be ready to go and totally threw Central Sterile under the bus. Well, I knew that was not true because I had been there the day before and there was no such tag on the instruments. And in my travels that morning throughout Central Sterile, I knew there was no tag on it then either. What he ended up doing was coming in and post-dating a tag. He came in and threw a tag on it before he uh, got back in the hospital and said, see, it was here all along, and they missed it. Now, I will give you this advice. Don't get in the middle of those discussions, even if you know the truth. I think it's very self-serving. Uh, I didn't say anything, but the staff knew. They knew, and he never lived it down. And just like that lamp in the Berenstein Bears, once it's broken, it is not easily put back together. Now, fortunately, these war stories are few and far between. We just don't find a lot of people in this space. There's a sense of professionalism that just the flagrant fabrications are just not that common. But what we do find in this business is what I call the blurt. That would be a weird name for a kid, wouldn't it? Yeah, this is my son, blurt. What does blurt mean? To say something suddenly and without careful consideration. That is the landmine that so many device reps step on in this business. I see the blurt most commonly in stressful situations. There's a question about something that's not going right, or it's a leading question. These are super tricky, where the surgeon looks at you and says, the, the offset on this stem uh, goes up two millimeters if I go up a head size, right? And you just blurt out, right? There's no Twix bar. There's no time to think about this stuff. But after you say it, you realize that what has just been presented is not true. So let's dissect the not true aspect for just a second. Why is it not true? What we talk about a lot on Device Nation, we talked about it last week, is that this job has to be about the other person. And you've also heard me say a bunch of times is that I'd rather have the ugly truth than a beautiful lie. At the core of it, Dishonesty is all about self-preservation. 
Now, I want to extend that same courtesy to other people that I want for me. I, I tell my kids all the time, I want the ugly truth, not a beautiful lie. So I have to extend that to other people and provide them with that same information, right? Because I care about them and I don't care about preserving me. The more you try to protect yourself in situations like this, you're making it worse on yourself. So don't even try. But what do you do when it's too late? You've already pulled the pin on the grenade. You've blurted it out and you've said something. You're like, oh my gosh, that's not even true what I just said. What then? Well, basically you have three options in my opinion. You can either just let it ride and hope and pray that it all works out. I don't think that's a good option. Uh, number two, you could just double down on it, even when confronted with it later, and just stick to the lie, even when they know it's a lie. I don't think that's a good option either. Or I, I think the best scenario here is just to immediately pivot and say, you know, let me double check on that because I might be wrong. This allows the stress of the situation to recede somewhat and then allow you to present the truth in a composed manner. We can't let the fear of looking bad, i.e. that we don't know something or what's missing is on us. We can't let the fear of looking bad get in the way of doing the right thing, the only thing that is telling the truth. We talk about it all the time on Device Nation. Medical device sales is a function of proximity and time. You work with these people all the time. You make a mess in that bathtub, you got to get right back in it tomorrow. And if there is a hint of a lack of honesty about you and the way that you deal with things that go wrong, if they think that you're one of those people that are going to throw the nurse under the bus or the central sterile under bus when everybody in the room knows it was ultimately on you, you're going to lose big time. So don't be a loser. Embrace the truth at all costs, at all times, no matter what it makes you look like. So never, ever engage in willful fabrication. Never pretend to be the president of another company on letterhead, as tempting as that may sound to many of you out there. Uh, don't ever throw central sterile of the nursing staff under the bus for something that's obviously your fault. Don't do it. And lastly, if you ever find yourself in this situation where the stress of the moment, your brain is shutting down, you realize there is something very wrong here. The patient's on the table. The surgeon is staring at me. The nurses are staring at me. And you blurt out something that you know is not true. Have the presence of mind to immediately correct it and revisit it later. Don't let it stand. Nothing clears the air like the truth. And that is a perfect setup for today because Dr. Stocks is going to help us clear the air in a great discussion about the cleanliness of the air in the operating room. It is just a fascinating topic, and I know that we are all going to get a lot out of it. So welcome to the show, Dr. Greg Stocks. Thanks, Kevin. I'm really glad to be here. Dr. Stocks, I particularly am so grateful to have you on uh, today. I look forward to talking with you about shedders, UV, laminar flow spacesuits, and the air barrier and the like. But first, let's go back to Duke. And I would love to hear what was your path that would ultimately lead to a joint fellowship? Yeah, Duke was was a great four years of my life. Um, I, I kind of started to want to be a physician in high school, but I can't pinpoint any particular person who set me on that pathway. Nobody in my family was in medicine, nor did I have a, 
family physician that impressed, made an impression on me. I, I think the things about medicine that appealed to me was just, you know, the, the independence. Um, I figure I could always feed my family. I always like a good challenge, and I and I think medicine is kind of endlessly challenging. And you know, twenty two or twenty five years later, looking back, I, I think you know God was probably guiding my pathway because I feel incredibly blessed to do what I do and to make a difference in the people's lives I can make a difference in. And, and, uh, I don't know that I recognized it early in my career, but I think God was leading me down that pathway. So, I mean, I started out as an engineer at Duke thinking biomedical engineering, my father's influence. He said, Hey, if you don't get into med school or change your mind, you need a degree you can do something with. And after the first year, I actually transferred out of engineering because I was confident I was going into medicine and fortunate to, you know, come back to my home state of Texas and med school at Baylor and always liked, uh, always liked orthopedics. I just, I feel blessed to have ended up where I have ended up. I worked with some biomedical engineering students at Duke uh, for a patent I was involved in. That, they have an amazing program there uh, in that field. They do. And I, I've had a, another um, neat event in my life. And that is, I, I met my wife at Duke. Uh, we've been married 22 years. And I just dropped my uh, daughter off there to start college uh, at Duke uh, in these unusual you know, times that we're in, but she's on campus and uh, has just started college at Duke. So my wife are kind of getting uh, reconnected. So yeah, great, great, great four years of my life uh, were spent in Durham, North Carolina. Funny, Kevin, I, I grew up, you know, in Texas thinking football was all it was. And uh, I got, I got uh, changed pretty quickly being in North Carolina where uh, in the four years I was there, I think Carolina won a national title. Uh, I think that was the year when Jimmy Valvano at NC State went on his run to win a title. And um, the first year I was there, Duke got a new coach, and and nobody could really pronounce his name. And he 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 actually had a couple seasons that weren't too good, and they were thinking about whether they wanted to keep him or not. And then he he recruited this guy named Johnny Dawkins and started building teams from there. And um, Coach K has has built an incredible legacy there. So, were you a bogger? <laughs> that's a that's a crazy question. I can't believe you asked that question. I, I did live in a dorm called Bog. How did you know that? I don't that? know. It just I remember I remember the the fans in the crowd at the Duke games. Uh, they were called the Boggers. Are you serious? Okay, so Bog. That's crazy. I, there's only not not even a lot of Duke people know about Bog because it was just of a certain era. Bog was like a local fraternity. It was a selective men's dormitory. You know, selected being that you know they they had to ask you to live there, kind of like a fraternity, but it wasn't a, certainly a national fraternity. We think Bog stood for bunch of guys. <laughs> it was not. But we, tr- yeah, when I was there, we would typically sit behind the opposing team's bench and heckle the coach the entire time, um, and, and it, which was fun. You know, Lefty Drizel was at Maryland, and we had a great time heckling him. Um, it was funny, though, when Jimmy Valvano came to Cameron Indoor Stadium, you, you couldn't heckle no. the guy. He was the world's nicest guy, and he, you just loved him. He was just uh, just an amazing human being. But, yeah, you, I didn't – honestly, there, I didn't think there was 20 people that knew about Bog. <laughs> <laughs> so that's an incredible So question. you went on to <laughs> London to do some work at uh, Dr. Freeman's Bone and Research Unit, and this gentleman was a real legend. Uh, who passed away a few years ago. What was that experience like? And did you get to work with him at all? 
Oh yeah, no. So I spent one year with Michael Freeman. It was the best year of my RC training by far. So that was serendipitous. I like a lot of guys that go into orthopedics, I thought I wanted to go into sports medicine, you know, and somewhere around my fourth year of residency, I saw the light. Uh, I realized I didn't want to spend, you know, Saturday mornings in locker rooms and Friday nights on football fields and clinics seeing teenage girls with knee pain and, um, you know, worked with some guys who did joint replacement and just thought that is the coolest thing ever. Um, but I was, so I was a year late to apply for my fellowship, which was in California, San Diego. So I had a year to, to, to kill, um, it's getting Ted Hartman, who was a former orthopedic chairman, uh, where I was training at Texas Tech and Lubbock knew, uh, had some connections in England. And he said, well, let's see about getting a fellowship there. Ultimately hook up with Michael Freeman um, it was the best year of my RFP training for several reasons. One, it wasn't sort of overscheduled like we typically do in America. So I had a fair amount of downtime to read, you know, research and, um, you know, just, just kind of wrap my brain around short replacement stuff. And then, and I, I was able to have my own list of patients I could operate on because I had completed my residency by the time I went there. I wasn't, um, you know, I wasn't still in training, so I was able to do some surgery independently. But working with Michael Freeman, wow. Um, so Michael Freeman, you may know, but I'm not sure if everybody in the audience would know. He he basically invented knee replacement surgery. He he and John Insall were roommates at Cambridge University. Uh, undergraduate. And when they went on to do their medical work, um, you know, of course, John, uh, John Insall went across the pond to New York at HSS. And Michael Freeman tells the story that um, when he did his first knee replacement at the Royal London Hospital um, in London, he had one implant size, you know, no instruments, basically just a saw. And he puts in this primitive, you know, knee replacement and the guy does okay, you know, and he calls up, you know, his college roommate, John Insall, and says, John, I think, I think we're onto something here. You know, we need to, we need to see what we can do with this. So they, you know, kind of independently developed their approaches to knee replacement surgery, but he was the most articulate um, person I've, I've probably ever been around. The year I was with him, he was the outgoing president of the British Rugby Association and the incoming president of the European Orthopedic Federation, and he would take me to meetings with him. So, I mean, that that year was just uh, unbelievable. I, honestly, I feel sorry for the two guys I did my other fellows with at University of California, San Diego, Richard Coos and Richard Sansori. They're, they're phenomenal guys, but uh, Kevin, I knew everything about joint play surgery when I showed up, and that's not what you want in your fellow. At least I thought I did. Of course I didn't. But. <laughs> I'm sure I was pretty annoying to the to them, but uh, it was a phenomenal experience. I've read his obituary, and he made a remarkable uh, comment uh, when he retired in 1996. He said he never really understood how the knee worked, and then went on to do all this research that would end up leading to the, the science behind the medial constrained knee. And I thought that was just a kind of a humble comment for somebody to make with his uh with his cv uh with his intellect so kevin let me tell you a personal story the last month of my fellowship i was at his research office uh, out at Whitechapel, which is the east side of london and 
Michael Freeman said, as he would typically say, he's, you know, I was in the bathtub last night drinking a glass of scotch and I was thinking, um, <laughs> and, and he was influenced by this PhD in California named Ann Hollister. He had seen her work at, uh, at a meeting and the way the knee works and he thought she's got it right. And then it triggered him to think of the medial pivot. So he he showed me this piece of plastic that Mike Took, his instrument guy, who, who you know is is with Corin, made for him, and he had this old Thompson you know Hemi Arthroplasty on his shelf. And I remember taking the piece of plastic and taking the Thompson, yeah, and and it articulated perfectly and on the medial side. And he just explained why he thought it was um, you know a, a good idea. Um, and he basically said to me, just finishing my fellowship, he said, Greg, you know, if you want this, uh, back in the U S if you want to take it back to the States, uh, it's yours, you know, you can have this. We need, we need to, you know, we need a champion for this. And I was at that point in my career, you know, going back to Texas tech. And I, I guess I just didn't have the, um, I wasn't in a, in a headspace to say, yeah, I'm your guy. Let me take that on. Um, so I didn't say, yeah, I'm, I'm in, I, I, I did some medial pivot knees with right medical. I think it's an extremely interesting concept. Uh, David Ayers, who was also a, a Freeman, a, a fellow with Michael Freeman did take it on pretty much. And, and he and others have, I, I still think it's a, it's a great concept. Just, it makes a whole lot of sense. And I think it's been a, an interesting implant, but yeah, Freeman was just, uh, he, he was one of those guys that's just head and shoulders. I'll tell you a funny story, Kevin. He, I, I've never seen anybody hold an audience in the palm of his hand, like he could with a group of orthopedic surgeons, brilliant orthopedic surgeons, but he just, he just could, could orate and, um, reason in, in just a way that's just unbelievable. So I had this guy on this huge pedestal. He's just like, you know, you just can't come close to him. He invited me out to his farm in the Cotswolds uh, one weekend. He was driving me out there and his wife got in the car. And I realized there's one person, you know, on the planet who knows more than Michael Freeman. And that was his wife. You know, she would say, <laughs> she'd say, honey, you need to turn left up here. And he'd be like, well, I'm pretty sure it's like, no, honey, turn left. You know, <laughs> Typical marriage. But he, he was, it, I was very, I was, uh, I was very privileged to spend that year with Michael Freeman. Um, you know, toward, towards, it was towards the end of his, his career in terms of clinically practicing medicine, but he ca carried on his research interests. Um, he was all excited when I left him as a fellow about functional MRIs and MRIs where you can, you know, have range of motion. And he was going to an Eastern Bloc country to do more anatomic dissections. And he just had an amazing moment. Amazing guy. Speaking of research, uh, research has been so much a part of your career. You were a member of the Orthopedic Research Society for almost 20 years. Uh, where did that passion come from? And is there any work in particular that stands out to you from uh, from your experience in that that realm? You know, it's funny. My passion for research, I would say, is not born out of, you know, a, a desire to publish or further myself academically. In fact, it's almost the opposite. It's almost, um, I think, I think the, God, the way God wired me is I tend to be introspective and reflective and I'll, I'll just reflect on things, you know, at, whenever at night or, or um, and, and if an idea comes to me, I, you know, until I've run it to ground and kind of worked it through and thought it through, I, it's hard for me to let it go. And, and so that's, you know, the things that I've, I've had the privilege of getting involved in it from a research standpoint 
are ju- really just those kind of ideas. And, and, you know, hopefully we've talked some a little bit about, you know, air quality in the operating room and, and just some of the other projects I've been, been involved in. Um, you know, I think that's where the research comes from. You just see something that you think, you know, needs to change or could change for the better. You know, you just want to work towards making that happen. To, for the better of our patients and, uh, you, know, you know, predominantly. Definitely want to talk to you about the air quality control in the OR. But before I get there, you're working on an IRB that involves the a patient-specific valgus cut on the total knee. Tell me about that. Uh, yeah. So um, I, I guess in my fellowship in San Diego, I got in the habit of taking a 51-inch x-ray, you know, hips, knees, and ankles for uh, everyone who's going to have their knee replaced. And I would measure the valgus angle, which your audience will probably know is the difference between the uh, mechanical axis of the femur and the anatomic axis of the femur. Uh, I mean, I think of the femur as a triangle you know, with the femoral head and then the shaft and then the, the center of the notch. And, and that's the angle you, you know, you cut your femur at to restore the mechanical alignment in, in our patients. Um, so I was, I was taking that measurement on all my patients before replacing their knee. And I found that that number would vary anywhere from two or three degrees up to eight or nine degrees and everything in between. And the, um, you know, the, the, what everyone does is basically, or, or what a lot of surgeons would do is not take any measurements, but just cut the distal femur at five degrees of valgus and uh, hope that that restores mechanical axis. And, and often it does. So we, we measured um, several hundred of those 51 inch x-rays and found, and, and we carefully controlled for rotation because, it, you know, some people have criticized uh, some inaccuracy with, with standing 51-inch x-rays because if the rotation of the limb is off, it can affect your, your uh, measurements. Um, but we controlled for magnification well. Um, and, and what we found was if you cut uh, a total knee or if you cut your distal femur at five degrees, you're right about 60% of the time. You know, but you're wrong about 40% of the time for what your specific target for that individual patient should be. So um, it, I was able to present that information at, at AUKUS, and it was published in one of their supplements. But so that's always intrigued me. And so what we're currently working on is um, I've got several thousand x-rays of patients who are indicated for total needs. We're, we're in the midst of our analysis, but I believe we're going to unlock something in the patient's inherent anatomy that leads to their knee arthritis. For example, what we found in the first study was folks that have medial compartment arthritis tend to have a more varus hip of more uh, a lower neck shaft angle, uh, which makes perfect sense if you think about the femur as a triangle with the mechanical anatomic axis. Um, folks that have lateral compartment arthritis tend to have more valgus hips. I mean, there was a very strong correlation between the two. And I think it may be causative. I think if you're born with a valgus hip, you're more prone to wearing out your lateral compartment. And what we found was if you have a if you have a valgus hip and a worn out lateral compartment in your knee, you should be cutting the femur at three or four degrees, not five or six degrees, if you want to restore the mechanical axis. And similarly, if if you have a varus knee with a higher offset hip, you want to be cutting the femur at you know at least five, if not six or seven degrees. So. I just think we can be more precise in uh, restoring the mechanical axis if you're a surgeon who's not navigating your knees 
or getting a CAT scan or, or a long x-ray pre-op. So I, I hope from our current analysis, we'll be able to say you should cut your your valgus knees at four degrees and your varus knees at six degrees and you'll you'll end up with better mechanical alignment i remember those templates uh, by the way <laughs> yeah exactly. i still have some of those templates we now of course do it digitally but for years our, our zimmer guys would get me some plastic templates so i could measure let's it. talk about the uh air in the or i connected with you years ago on a audio digest presentation and I've listened to that presentation at least 30 times. It was just fascinating to me, uh, the things that you covered. And I'd like to just kind of walk through these various things and just get your thoughts uh, where you think we are now uh, since you've done that presentation. Let's just start with the room. I remember this from the the presentation. I, I walk into an empty OR room. Nobody's in it. Is it pretty much a clean room? Absolutely. I mean, I think there have been several studies that have documented that. It doesn't matter if you have the world's greatest laminar flow or or a varicell filter that's not as high efficiency. If there's nobody in the room, you can put petri dishes down or measure bacteria however you want to. No people, uh, unless you have a real problem with your air handling system, which is uncommon, there's no bacteria in the room. You're exactly right. Let's talk about people. Uh, I'm assuming that the moment people start walking into the room, uh, that's when mischief begins. I believe the stat you shared was the average person sheds 10 million skin particles a day, 10,000 a minute while they're walking, and 10% of those particles have colonizing potential microbes on them. Yeah, yeah. When I see hospitals that have strong policies about the door opening in the OR, can I take what you said to its logical conclusion that if that door is opening and somebody's leaving, that that's a good thing? It is. Yeah, it is. I, I think there is a direct correlation between the number of individuals in the OR and the number, the amount of particulate in the operating room, and secondarily, the amount of bacteria or as measured by colony forming units on those particulates. So, yes, you're right. I, I, guess, I, I hadn't honestly thought of it that way, but those door openings are good door openings. <laughs> <Right. really> <laughs> I was amazed uh, when you did your agar plate analysis that the door opening and closing really didn't affect your counts. I thought that was interesting. Yeah, yes. And that is, there has there have been other, as you know, probably other research that shows door openings and traffic uh, is of concern. But uh, in our particular OR setup, and, and, you, and mo- a lot of ORs, if not most, uh, the doors that open in my cases are to the substerile area, which is a relatively sterile area, not to the you know, hallway, quote unquote, where that's that's an unsterile area. I don't know that there's good research that tells you there's a difference there, but I, I, b- I believe there may be. We worry about things falling into the wound during the case, but I never consider the fact that things are falling on the instruments throughout the case and then being delivered into the wound. It has been said, and I think it's speculation, it's hard to prove that, you know, up to 30% of infections may be due to particulate that leads to bacteria on the instruments on the back table that are then you know put into the wound. I believe Duke, back in the 1930s, there was a thoracic surgeon by the name of Dr. Hart, and he was the one that started the whole concept of UV in the OR, and now the hospitals are buying these super expensive robots to do this, but it always seemed to make a little bit more sense to me uh, and it was certainly a cheaper construct. Uh, just put it in the ceiling and 
And then when people leave the room between cases, it's really easy just to flip a switch and uh, and hit the room for a little while. So, what are your uh, what are your thoughts on where we are with UV right now? That approach is effective, but as we've talked about previously, you know, um, you can kill the bugs when the room's empty, but then when the people, the patients, the nurse, the anesthesiologist, everybody else comes starts coming back in the room, unless you're continually exposing the room to UV, you're, you're going to have particulate with bacteria on it in the room. So it, it needs to be more of an ongoing uh, use of UV, and, and then you have the environmental concerns. So, you know, I'm not a COVID expert. There certainly are some uses for, um, you know, UV to treat a general room for other um, infectious agents, but um, th- that's my concern about using UV to treat the entire room during the procedure, which is when you need the treatment. Uh, I've uh, I've covered cases at Duke before and had to put on the the banker hat and sleeves and all that. So uh, uh, I don't know if they're still doing that there now, but um, I have heard that uh, they recently uh, are not so much, and I, I don't think they're using that. Yeah, I think you're right. It did start at Duke prior to uh, Indiana, and maybe that's where Mary Rutter got the idea from. But uh, And I don't think they're using it real extensively, even in Indiana. So I, there was, you probably are aware, in, uh, in Boston, there were some ORs that had UV light, and the OR nurses actually uh, appealed to OSHA and said it was environmentally hazardous, and they they were successful in having the UV lights removed from the operating rooms there. So where are we on laminar flow? I'm glad you asked that question. Laminar flow, I believe, is the wrong word because it makes us focus on the wrong thing. I, I think clean air in the operating room is extremely important, and I think a lot of you know, people have the um, they 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 affiliate laminar flow with clean air, but unfortunately, there's not a good you know correlation there, either in um, you know in in any research studies or in and even in registry studies. There's just many studies that show operating rooms that have laminar airflow do not necessarily have lower infection rates and and. Famously, you know, in some studies, there's higher infection rates. So all laminar flow does, as you know, is, you know, have a higher volume of air with more air exchanges in the operating room, which um, theoretically makes sense. But, you know, if you have high volume of air coming out of the ceiling and the first thing it hits are the OR lights, uh, it then becomes, you know, turbulent and random. Uh, So two good examples um, Kevin, that, that you're probably aware of. One was from HSS in, in the 70s, and they actually published this. They had a horizontal laminar flow where the, the laminar air was coming out of the wall and going across the patient. Um, and they actually found a higher infection rate for knee replacements done in their laminar flow rooms compared to ones that were not. And of course, you know, the thought process was the surgeons would probably inadvertently or the scrub tech or anybody who's in the sterile field would step in front of the laminar flow and bacteria from the back of their gown or somewhere else that was not completely sterile would be carried into the wound. In Germany, uh, there was what they called it the National Nosocomial Study, but they looked at over 100,000 surgeries, including a lot of hip replacements, and found the same thing with, with, um, 
vertical laminar flow from the ceiling down. The surgeons there did not wear sterile hoods. They wore unsterile headgear and they'd lean over the hip while they're doing their hip replacements and, and it would just carry more bacteria in the wound. So they had higher infection rates with laminar flow. Uh, similar findings, uh, I think, with the New, New Zealand registry. So um, you, you can't in your mind... Um, you know, think that laminar flow and clean air is are equivalent. Now, clean air critically important, and and again, you can go back to the, uh, you know, get me back on history here because there's such a great history of joint replacement surgeons with infections, starting with John Charnley. Um, you know, Charnley, he, he fixed so many things about hip replacement surgery that for a hundred years people had tried and not been successful with. He found the right fixation method with polymethylmethacrylate. He found the right approach to the instrumentation, the technique, but he was plagued with infection once he got all that down. I mean, he had a 7% infection rate with his first successful, you know, batch of hip replacements once he started using high-density polyethylene and got past his Teflon problem. You know, and he just said it must be the air in the OR. So he invents, with his air handling team, he invents the greenhouse where the only person in the the portion where the operation is going on was the surgeon and one assistant, but the anesthesiologist was outside of the greenhouse. The Even the patient's head was outside of the greenhouse, and that cut his infection rate in half. When he did implement laminar flow in an effective way, that cut it in half again, down to one and a half percent. And then his, and you, you may be aware of this, his approach to body exhaust suits, which he also then brought in next, was to have the suit ventilated outside of the greenhouse. So there were hoses where the exhaust from the, the suit would go outside the, the enclosure, and that cut his infection rate down to 0.6%. So he went from 7% to 0.6% just by changing the way he managed the environment of his operating room and the air in his operating room. He made the air cleaner. Yes, laminar flow was one part of that, but uh, it, it was used in a, in a proper way. So, you know, that was what, 70, 60 to 70 years ago. I guess it was the 1960s when he was doing that study. So 60 years ago, we haven't come that far. I, I'm sorry to say with our understanding and our research that there were some other researchers in England, Lidwell and White, who found they found direct correlations between the amount of particulate in the room the amount of bacteria in the wound and the amount of deep infections that occurred. And it, it correlated with, you know, how clean the air was in the room. And so we know that we've known that for a long time, but we, we don't effectively measure how clean the air is in our operating rooms. And, and I don't know that we manage it as well as we can. So yeah, definitely a topic I'm passionate about. And I, and I think in the next few decades, we will see huge changes in how we, Think of the operating room and the air within it. You know, Kevin, it, it's crazy to me that we, when we started measuring particulate in operating rooms, we took some measurements that the OR was similar to what you would measure in your garage, literally, or, or you know, in a warehouse uh, where some of this uh, equipment that we use was made. Whereas, you know, if you're making a microchip or, or if you're a pharmaceutical manufacturer, you're, you're producing things in essentially a, a clean room environment where it's strictly either strict standards, there's strict monitoring, there's strict controls, and you know what the air quality is at all times in that facility. And if there's ever a problem with it, you, you identify and you remediate it. But in our ORs, we don't know. 
you know, it's, it's, to me, it's one of these things you see it and you think this has got to change and this will change. And so I, I am passionate about trying to, uh, trying to work on that and figure out how the best way is to do that. True story. Many years ago, there was a facility that was having a rash of surgical site infections and everybody was really worried about it. They couldn't figure out where it was coming from because nothing seemed to have changed. And armed with the information from your talk, I was so excited. I I said, you know, maybe we could do some uh, particle count analysis and just check out the air in your room. Is there something going on in the air that's changed or it's unacceptable? That would be information that I thought would be good to know. Maybe something had changed in their air handling system that they weren't aware of. Innocently enough, I thought, here I am, a problem solver, trying to bring value to my customer. And I had the OR director go, that is not information that we want on paper, and we don't want to know. And uh, because then we would be liable. Uh, And I thought, wow, we're living in a strange time and place when... Uh, information uh, yeah. that may help the patient, we we can't have access to that. So that's a great story, Kevin. Because I mean, you you've heard the correlation between you know surgery and and flying airplanes, and I mean the aviation industry puts incredible amounts of effort into analyzing near misses. You know, if, if there's a near miss, they they absolutely are going to understand what went wrong, you know, why it happened, and how they can prevent it. But but in medicine. The approach is, 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 as you said, exactly. It's like, wow, we can't let that get out or we'll get sued. <laughs> well, I got to I gotta ask a crazy particle question. Uh, this involves sleeves, okay? I remember we went through this phase where a lot of hospitals were saying, okay, everybody has to be wearing long sleeve jackets now, dealing with skin flakes. And then a paper came out, and I'm going to read from it just for a second. Uh, Naked men shed approximately a third to a half. I I hate reading anything that starts out with that word for some reason. It just, but unclothed men shed approximately a third to a half as many bacteria as the same men wearing scrap clothes or scrub suits. Perhaps scrubs actually live up to their name rather than catching squames, which the skin sheds perpetually. They may in fact be scrubbing these bacteria-laden squames from our skin. So with that statement there, is the jury still out on wearing long sleeves? Yeah, no, that, it's interesting. I have not I have not heard that. It, yeah, I'd say the jury's still out. You know, uh, Kevin, in my mind, um, you know, you see these folks working in clean, clean rooms, and they're in what sort of looks like a body exhaust suit, but, the, you know, the, the hands and feet are, are enclosed, and, and everything is enclosed. So... Yeah, anything that would allow egress of the particulate is going to contaminate your operating room. And but yeah, long sleeves, short sleeves, or, or hopefully we're not ever where we have you know unclothed uh, male assistants. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, but yeah, the, the jury's out. In in so many ways on this whole topic, there's just so much information we don't we don't know, and there's some information we do know, but it's just not widely known or or uh, thought about or accepted or or doesn't cause a great level of concern. To the surgeon that's walking in the room Monday, what are the things armed with what you know? If you were sitting down talking to a group of surgeons, what are the things that that they would want to know or to be aware of that you think is the 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 state of the union right now where we are with the the research out there what what do they need to have their eye on 
Great question. So um, number one, the risk for a surgical site infection directly correlates to the number of people in the operating room. And that is something that is under the surgeon's control. So, uh, you know, it's, it's old hat, but just to reinforce, you know, limit, limit your traffic, limit the number of people in the room. Number two, what we've seen in the past two or three years that I think is helpful, you know, dilute betadine irrigation. I, I think we've talked a little bit about the fact that you're going to end up with some bacteria in your wound. I mean, one one thing I always say is that's why prophylactic antibiotics work is because and that's why you need them is because there is going to be some bacteria in your wound at the end of the case, no matter what you do, no matter how meticulous you are. So, you know, a little, little betadine irrigation at the end probably makes a difference. You know, jury's probably out on vancomycin powder, but th- there may be a role for that as well. Third is I think we need to better understand our operating room. And, and it's frustrating for a surgeon because how much control do you have over, you know, how how the clean the filters are in the ceiling of your OR or when the quality of the air was last assessed in your OR? You just don't really have control over those things. So uh, I'm I'm working a little bit with a company that's called OnSite, O-N-S-I-T-E, and they have a very sophisticated analytical algorithm where they can look at the air in the operating room from several different uh, variables, and they can figure out what what can be optimized in terms of airflow. And you know, are there are there filters that need to be changed? Are there um, return vents that are blocked that need to be opened up? Other things, and and they have shown in a statistically significant you know, manner that by, by doing the analysis, making the changes they suggest, and then, you know, doing surgery in a, in a optimized environment, you're going to have less SSIs. So I think in the future, we all need to, I guess, work with our hospitals to educate them on the critical importance of having clean air in our operating rooms, not just installing a laminar flow system, but having clean air and having a, a method of continuously monitoring and analyzing and optimizing. And that's that's what that's the exciting part to me for for the going forward. I think we're going to see that in the next 10 to 20 years in all all operating rooms for all surgeries. But I, I think arthroplasty surgeons are going to lead the way in, in doing that because we, we understand this better than other fields. We've lived with it since Charlie in the 60s, longer than other fields. And it's critically important to us because an infection is a disaster for our patients and, and for us. And it's just not easily treatable uh, as it might be with a, with a soft tissue surgery with no implants. You've done a lot of medical missions work in Africa. Any noteworthy stories from your experience there? And uh, tell me about your first trip. I got asked to go to the West Bank of Palestine to help um, train uh, some, you know, really just to do some hip and knee replacements. And then when I, I got there, I realized there was a teaching hospital and that really what was needed was training. Uh, they had smart, eager you know, surgeons and attendings. They just didn't have much training. Um, so for four years, I went every summer, um, worked with the same group of residents and attendings and um uh, basically had a guy who had a real interest in doing joint replacements. And after four years of going there, he came to Houston and did a little mini fellowship. 
went back to Palestine and is really the only sort of fellowship trained joint replacement guy in the entire West Bank of Palestine. That's over 4 million people. So, you know, I felt like God put me in a position to train this surgeon who could then, you know, carry on. And I, this was 2017. I think I was getting ready to go back, you know, cause I'd gone four years in a row and had him here the fifth year. And he said, you know, Dr. Greg, I, I I think I got this, you know, I'm doing, I'm doing 40 cases a month and it's fine. I don't think I need any help right now. So as that door closed, um, a door opened, my, my church was sending a mission team to Kenya. And so my wife and I, my two youngest daughters went there. Um, and I, I was able to do a few joint replacements, um, work alongside a general surgeon who did a lot of orthopedic trauma work mostly, but what I learned was um, this uh, – well, so the, the need for surgical treatment in, in what they call sub-Saharan Africa is, is dire. Um, the World Health Organization did a study that showed that more people die in sub-Saharan Africa every year from lack of access to a surgeon, a general surgeon, an OB-GYN, an anesthesiologist, um, yeah, an orthopedic surgeon – more people die from lack of access to trained surgeons than they do from TB, malaria, and HIV combined. And, and so there was an organization called, it's called PACS, the Pan-African Academy of Christian Surgeons. They decided the way to uh, address that issue was to train African surgeons to, you know, it, with a good training, American-style training program. And the surgeon I worked with in Maua, Kenya, was trained through PACS and he was an amazing surgeon, amazing person. They, they do have a, a separate um, spiritual track or Christian track. So they train Christian surgeons, but it's an amazing program. They've now trained over a hundred general surgeons. They now have three orthopedic programs, two in Kenya, one in Ethiopia, and, and they're doing great things to, to train these surgeons that they, they do a lot of trauma when I, I, I guess the next summer I went to Tenwick Hospital where I, I taught for two weeks and worked alongside the guys there and did some joint replacements. This is, uh, and I'll apologize, Kevin, it's a bit of a long story, but there's a lot of trauma in Africa and other developing countries. And there's a program called the Sign Nail, S-I-G-N. Have you ever heard of the Sign Nail? Yeah, I believe Julia Greenspan from Stryker shared that with me. Just an amazing program. Yeah. So amazingly, the, the hospitals I've worked at in Kenya, the sign nails have revolutionized their ability to treat long bone fractures because they see femur, tibia, humerus shaft fractures all the time because the, these inexpensive motorcycles from China have just inundated the country and they just see a lot of road traffic accidents. So Lou Zirkel with the sign nail has made this program where the implants are free to these you know, poorly resourced hospitals as long as they will fill out, you know, the appropriate forms that allow them to do research, you know, they'll donate the instruments and they'll continue to replenish their supply of nails. And it's, it's amazing what they've done. So one of my current passions is there's a surgeon in Nashville named Michael Christie, who is with the Southern Joint Replacement Institute. And he's worked with an Irish implant company to develop what he, they call the world hip and the world knee. And it's a similar concept where you have a high quality but low cost, you know, hip and knee implant for around, say, $500 that you could take to these developing under-resourced countries. I've seen so many patients with arth arthritis that's limiting their quality of life. They can't afford 
implants and they can't afford the resources. So I hope for the, the next half of my life, it, it's something that's been put on my heart is to, you know, try to see if it's possible to develop a program similar to the sign nail program with hip and knee implants for, you know, whether it's South America or, or Africa or, or other countries that are developing just to bring the amazing ability we have to change quality of life, you know, in our country to other places that don't have the, those resources. And in other words, as Michael Christie would say, the paradigm is shifting from, you, you know, you put together a team of, you know, a few surgeons and some nurses and some anesthesiologists, and you, you basically invest about a million dollars to go down to Guatemala and re- replace 10, 20 joints. And, and you've, you've helped those 10 or 20 people, but then everybody goes back home and you're, you're done. Whereas the sign concept and, and perhaps with the world hip or world knee, it would be to go and train the local surgeons. And I, I promise you from the ones I've worked with, they're more than capable of, you know, doing the surgeries and having the appropriate care the patients need. You know, I think we'd need foundational support, charitable support to have the supply of implants available and, and we can change the quality of life for so many people. So that's, as I say, I'm, I'm kind of embarking on what I would consider the second half of my, my life and my career. I, I certainly plan to continue to stay busy clinically, and I, I love what I do. But if I can devote more of my time and effort to that, I, I hope to do so. Speaking of clean air, tell me about the air barrier system. When Sean Self with Nimbic Systems came to me with the concept, I just thought it was a great idea. Um, don't don't try to make the whole room ultra sterile, but just make a cocoon of ultra sterile air right over your incision. And the air barrier does that very effectively. It's FDA approved, you know, for hip replacements. Uh, there's actually been a study that's uh, accepted for publication in the for shoulder arthroplasty in the Shoulder and Elbow Society Journal. And we've preliminary done some work for knee replacements where I think it's equally as effective. So I like the concept. Nimbic recently, as in, you know, the past month or so, has sold the technology to uh, a company called uh, Mizuo, which I'm learning about. Uh, They're actually going to come visit uh, our operating room next month. You know, the technology is kind of slowly creeping forward. Unfortunately, we don't have the power yet to show a big reduction in infection rates. You know, when you're working in hospitals that have a 0.5% infection rate, you literally need tens of thousands of patients to show a difference. So we can, we certainly in our experimental studies showed you reduce particulate and you reduce culinary for, colony forming units, you know, adjacent to the incision, but we don't have that big piece of showing a reduced infection rate yet, but I think it's a matter of time for that. So it's it's slowly marching forward, I would say, uh, Kevin. Doctor, you've been doing this a while. Do you have any advice for surgeons coming right out of school, starting their practice? Uh, what, what do you know now that you wish you would have known when you first started or just given the environment we're in? Is there anything in particular, the some advice you think is uh, worth handing out? I'm going to go away from research and technology uh, and just say, um, you know, listen to your patients. I I think it's an incredible privilege that we are given to, you know, improve our patients' quality of life. And I see myself as more of a, you know, a servant heart who can, you know, all our patients have, they're, they're individuals with their own needs, their own, you know, anxieties, their own uh, set of circumstances. And I think listening and focusing on what each patient needs, if you do that, if you listen to your patients and, and you're willing to say, it's my patient, it's about them, it's not about me, 
you're going to look 10 to 20 years down the road and you're going to have more patience than you, you can operate on. And you're going to have considered your career to be incredibly successful. Tell me any, uh, any thoughts that you would share with the reps that listen. There's a lot of them. And what, what do you think makes somebody good in that space? What makes somebody great versus somebody good? Gosh, it's it's funny. Uh, I feel like we're spoiled uh, as a, as a surgeon because I've worked as I've most surgeons with a lot of reps over my career, and th- there's very few that don't stand out to me as just being outstanding individuals and outstanding at what they do. So, I mean, yeah, it goes without saying that you're you know reliable and you have you have the stuff you need to have reliably and you communicate well before during and after the case and i yeah i think it's just i think it's the integrity and it's almost similar to the advice i you asked me for a young physician it's just getting to know the the surgeons and and knowing uh, not only technically what what they like to do but knowing them as a person those are the reps that we love to have in our room and love to be around and and add add value, you know, to to what we're doing. Great stuff, Doctor Stocks. I so love the heart behind what you're doing across the board. Your research on air quality has inspired me personally and professionally. I am so thankful to have you on the show and just sharing what's what's on your heart these days. And uh, I'm really excited about that World Hip Knee Project. That just sounds like a lot of fun and just just amazing stuff. I really appreciate you coming on the show to share all this stuff. Yeah, absolute privilege, uh, Kevin. I, I appreciate the opportunity to to spend this time with you and and with your uh, the folks who listen to the podcast and um, love to to stay involved down the road. So I just want to say thank you. What an awesome conversation with Dr. Stocks. I'm so thankful he came on the show. So many good talking points for us to take into our week. And a huge thank you to my listening audience. I just got my Buzzsprout stats in the other day. And by download count, we are in the top 5% of all podcasts in the United States now, which is insane considering the niche aspect of medical device. And on top of that, I find out that we're number 14 in Japan. Didn't know we had a following in Japan. That's really amazing stuff to me. Uh, I was so proud of that this week. My wife asked me to take out the garbage, and I looked at her like, what are you asking me to do that for? I'm number 14 in Japan. I took out the garbage anyway. So thank you, thank you, thank you, honestly. So as we go into this week, let's all remember to be straightforward, be honest, be blurtless, say that 10 times fast, and most importantly, let's all be safe.